Thank you for that this morning. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to 1 Peter. Uh, again, 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. We'll be in verses 13 through 17 in just, in just a moment, all right? But as you're finding your place there, just be reminded once again as we come to it that Peter is writing for this main purpose, to strengthen the brethren, just as Jesus commanded him to do one day when Jesus said, Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And so that's what he's trying to do with these epistles. He's trying to give great strength to these believers because in just a short amount of time, they're going to be facing great persecution, suffering greatly at the hands of a wicked man, Caesar Nero. And they're going through great, horrendous, horrendous times. And so they needed a great strength. They needed great, great hope through the fiery trials, through the, the pain of the day, just for really the next day. But the hope and strength that they needed, that hope, by the way, is not some uh, just crossing your fingers and hope it works out. No, again, be reminded, real biblical hope that we all have is based on the person and promises of God. All right? So this is not just some wishful thinking type of hope. No, this is real. Real hope. And these people need it really bad. But where were they going to find it? Well, they're going to find it from the Word of God as Peter sits down and writes to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if, again, if you need some help, you need some hope, you need some strength in your life today, get in the Word of God. It'll help you. It'll strengthen you. You'll find great hope as you trust your Bible. Let's find ourselves again in 1 Peter chapter 3. And as we come to verse 13, keep in mind that Peter has concluded his last section of thought in verse number 12, when he used the word finally there, and he went on to tell them how they're going to have some good days even in the midst of bad ones. But he kind of con concludes that thought. But as he starts in verse number 13, he kind of uh, circles back, if you will, to acknowledging their current situation. He comes back and addresses their current state of life. And you may be thinking or asking, well, what is that current state of life they are facing? Well... Be reminded, these folks are suffering in every form of the word you can think of. These dear people are suffering horrendously. And so this morning, quickly, what I want to look at is this title, the message this morning. I want to see a season of suffering. A season of suffering. Let's look at it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 13 with me. And we'll go down through verse 17. The Bible says, And who is he that will harm you? If you be followers of that which is good, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's that word hope yet again. Verse 16. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Our Father, again, as we look to your word this morning, I pray that you to help us to understand it, apply it to our lives, and even see this subject, this title of suffering this morning. And it's something we don't like to talk about because we sure don't want to go through it. Yet, it's inevitable. It happens to us all. 
I pray that you help us to apply these truths of your word to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we consider this subject and this title this morning of suffering, a season of suffering, I want to look at this. Number one, I want to see the reality of it, all right? The reality of suffering. Again, look at verse number 13. Peter says, and who is he that will harm you? If you be followers of that which is good. Now, as Peter says this and starts out here in verse 13, he starts out with this section uh, with a question. And his question is a rhetorical question, all right? And just be reminded that a rhetorical question is a question that is asked but demands no answer, all right? Because the answer is already implied within the question. And so a rhetorical question would be something like this, like when a parent... Uh, looks at their kid who's just gotten into trouble. And it's always that kid that's sneaky. And since he's sneaky, he's, he's always trying to talk himself out of trouble. Who are you in here was that kid? Yeah, me too. We'd have been friends, all right? But, uh, but anyway, always trying to talk himself out of trouble. And when he comes up with some excuse off the wall, as always, excuse of why he got into trouble, he'd probably say, well, you know, the dog made me do it after all, you know. But after he comes up with some crazy excuse, the parent looks at this kid and says, do you think I'm stupid or something? Now listen, kids, young people. If your parent ever asks you that question, they are not looking for an answer. Never, ever answer that question with the affirmative, all right? Never look at your parents and say, well, actually, yes, my honored parental units, I find your lack of understanding and knowledge on this matter of my misfortune quite disturbing. (laughs) Never answer with that, all right? (laughs) You never do that when your parents say, do you think I'm stupid or something? Never say yes. You know why? Because you'll die. That's why, all right? (laughs) So it's a rhetorical question. The answer is going to be always, you think I'm stupid or something, always going to be, no, of course not, never. Because that answer is implied. Well, that's what Peter's doing here. He's given a rhetorical question with the answer already implied within, within that question. So when he says, and who is he that will harm you if you be fathers that which is good, what he is saying, what he's getting at is this. If you follow that which is good. If you do the right thing, if you follow Jesus, you follow God, then in this world, you very well could suffer for it. In this world, you very well could face some hard times, troubled times, by simply claiming the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior, by standing up for truth and for rights. You will face some difficulty and even, yes, suffering. Listen, suffering, trouble, it can come for being a follower of Christ. And this was a real reality for these believers in this first century. Not just, it wasn't just a potential. No, really, it was what was going on. It was their current reality in this first century. They were facing certain suffering. It was their reality. And listen, anyone who does follow the Lord... When some form or fashion they can face some sort of maltreatment, some sort of, of suffering, whether it be you lose friends over it, 
You may have some family turn your back on you because you're just following the Lord, trying to do what's right. It can happen. It has happened. And yes, listen, even the physical persecution against believers following Jesus still happens today. Now, I understand that the physical persecution does not necessarily happen here in America, at least in our lifetime. Not like it has in years gone by because the freedom we have in this country, freedom to assemble and freedom to worship and freedom of speech. But other countries do not have the same kind of freedom even today in 2024. If you was to go over into China and wanted to go find a church, one that would preach the Bible and live it, you're probably going to go find one that's in hiding in secret, as they would call the underground churches. That's where you'll probably go if you wanted to find a Bible-preaching church. The majority of them are there, underground. I even heard of a testimony even recently of an American pastor who went to China. And uh, as a pastor who went from America to, to minister to the Chinese pastors there, he met with them, several of them, in secret. I think he said he met with 22 of them. And some of them traveled as far as, as 13 hours on, on a train just to be in that, in that meeting. But as he was in that meeting, many of these national pastors had suffered so much already for the cause of Christ there in China. He said, he asked for a raise of hands. Out of the 22 pastors, he said, have any of you been to prison? Out of the 22, 18 raised their hand and been to prison because of preaching the gospel, that is. 18 out of 22 had suffered. But as I met, the American pastor said, you know, as I'm here, there is such a hunger for the word of God. There was such a hunger to assemble together with, with the church and with other believers. There was such unity surrounding them and there was so much power in their prayers. And all of that, as he acknowledged it and saw it, it humbled this pastor from, from the states. And he was there with them for a few days and tried to encourage them and help, him, help them, but really found himself being helped even more so. But as he was about to leave and fly back to the States, he asked, he asked them, he said, Now, how can I pray for y'all? And one of them spoke up and said, said this, Well, pastor there in America, you, you get to freely assemble, you get to freely go to church without any fear of outside persecution. And he said, Pastor, will you pray for us that we will be like you guys in America one day? And that pastor said, no, I will not pray that. <laughs> they were a little stunned and shocked by that answer. And he said, well, can you explain why? He said, I will not pray for that. Here's why. He said, some of you, you traveled over 13 hours to be in this little meeting. We went to hide, doing hiding. And in America, it can be an inconvenience to drive more than 15 to 30 minutes to church. He said, you have sat on a wooden floor, hard wooden floor for three days listening to teaching and preaching and didn't care about how long it took. He said, in America, we've gotten so, uh, so, so used to a 30 to 45 minute message that if it goes longer, well, if we don't leave, we'll at least tell the pastor about it before we do. 
He said, listen, you have memorized whole chapters of the Scripture and you memorize a lot of that while you were in prison as people would come and slip them in, sneak them in to you. And you had to memorize them so quickly before the guards would take them away and destroy the Scriptures. You've memorized chapters of the Bible. He says in America, many, many believers don't read it faithfully on a regular basis. He said, no, I'm not going to pray that you become like America. He said, rather, I'm going to pray that America becomes like you. What an amazing thought. Amazing uh, prayer to pray. You see, these individuals were that way because of the horrendous suffering they've gone through and persecution. And some folks may think, you know, that sounds pretty harsh to pray that way. But understand, we've gotten so used to the goodness of God that it ceases to be overwhelming anymore. I'm asking God to help us. You see, every time the church went through persecution, it flourished. Read your Bible. Start an Acts and read it through. You'll see the church grew in number daily. But they were going through such horrendous treatment and suffering. It was their current reality. Now I know there are some preachers today that would preach, that would preach the, against that kind of thing, that you, know, you wouldn't be right with God and if you're going through horrible times and they would have to tell these dear precious believers that they were not right with God if they're facing literal fire at the hand of Nero. You know. But these preachers... That promise blue skies and smooth sailing. Listen, they're promising something that Jesus never promised. Here's what Jesus promised. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, then the world will love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And he went on to say in John 16, 33, But these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Other apostles would echo the same words that Jesus wrote and said. Even Paul would say this to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 and 13. He said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Again, Peter's going to echo this, and we'll get to it eventually in 1 Peter 5.10. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Listen, trials, difficulties, tribulations, and yes, even suffering, those times of life can be inescapable and they can happen to everyone and it can be a reality. And knowing that it can be, and knowing for some that it is, it should cause every one of us within the body of Christ to respond to each other in grace and compassion and mercy and love and in kindness. Because you have no idea what your fellow beside you 
may be going through. Why? Because suffering can be a reality, a reality of life. Now, again, I know there are some who say if you're going through some suffering, going through difficulty, there must be some kind of sin in your life. Again, those people are wrong. Now, that's not necessarily always the case. Some would say you're not right with God. You're not praying hard enough. You're not being faithful enough. You're not doing this enough, not doing that enough. Again, that's not always the case. Even Job's friends thought that was his uh, demise because of his evil or some sin he's done in his life. But that's, that's not true. Though we understand there can be consequences of sin. And uh, as the saying goes, uh, there's a reason for everything. And sometimes that reason is because you're stupid. You know, but anyway, we understand that the consequences of sin can happen. We, we know that. But that's not always the case when you see a saint who's suffering. Job, he went through horrendous suffering, but yet he, Bible says, is a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and skewed evil. He was a good man, but he went through horrendous suffering. You can look again even at Paul himself. You can read in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 28, as he talks about his suffering that he went through. And again, as he says in, in 2 Timothy 3 and verses 10 through 12, again, he says this, that they know of his doctrine and manner of life and purpose and faith and long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. He didn't go through all those persecutions and trials and suffering because he was out of the will of God. Rather contrary is because he was in it. And it was a reality to him. All I'm saying this morning with this first point, as Peter's pointing out this, suffering can be a reality of life even to the most faithful of saints. And it was a present reality to these dear people. They were suffering. But notice not only about this season of suffering, that's reality. I want you to notice this, number two. I want you to notice the response to it. And here's where we'll land the rest of the time. But I want to see their response to the suffering. Look again at verse 14. Here's the responses that Peter gives them when it comes to suffering. He says, but and if you suffer for righteous' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you, accuse your good con conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil Evil doing. Now I want you to take note in verse number 16 here, this word conversation. Now this word again is not necessarily speaking of how we talk or how we speak. It's not talking about just our conversating as individuals one toward another, though the, the thought at least is implied no doubt. But really where this word is getting to, it goes beyond just how we talk. It goes to how we conduct ourselves. It talks about our manner of life, our manner of living, our behavior in this world. And at this moment, Peter is giving attention of how these believers were conducting themselves. 
Again, conducting themselves within the context of suffering, of great difficulty, facing the fire, which was quite literal again, as Nero would impale these believers on a pole, put some kind of uh, uh, tar or whatever on them, and light them on fire for his drunken parties. That's what history tells us. So that's the context of suffering. And but because of this treatment, because of how Nero treated these people and considered them at this time, the overall majority of the Roman ruled people thought the believers deserved it. Even in verse 16 where it says, whereas they speak against you as evildoers. So they were accused, these believers were accused of horrendous crimes. They were accused of being enemies of Rome. They were accused of the, the, the setting of fire to Rome, which Nero probably did himself, but he had to put it on somebody, the blame on somebody, so he put it on this new religion called them of the way, or really there's the believers, the Christians. So he put the blame on them. And because of all this blame and because of their accused of being evildoers of horrendous crimes, they were considered enemies of Rome. And these believers were suffering immensely because of it and being slandered at every turn in their lives. And if you or I were going through such treatment, let me ask you this question. What would your conversation be? What would your behavior be if somebody accused you of wrongdoing and you didn't do it? Do you get upset? Defensive? Just, just, just a little bit. <laughs> Say, no, nah, you ain't going to call me no evildoer. You're an evildoer and so is your mama. You know, that's how we want to respond, right? <laughs> Nobody's going to accuse me. But he's telling them not to respond that way. Rather, he says this. Look at verse 16. Having a, what's that next word? Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers they may be a hold I'm sorry they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you your good conversation in Christ he is saying to respond in a good way and by the way good here it carrying the idea of something that is pleasant upright or even joyful the response, he is asking them and telling them to respond in such a way that would be pleasant and right. But would your behavior, your conduct, as you suffered, would it be this type of behavior? What kind of testimony would they be seeing? Because listen, people are going to be reading us. I've heard it said before that sometimes the only gospel somebody reads is you. What gospel are they reading? People watch. At work, they watch you. What do they see? What, what's your response? What do they see? You see, Peter's trying to get them to respond in a pleasant way, in a good way. Why? Because, listen, this is the only way they were going to shut up the slandering mouth and shut down the accusing finger was to live a life that was this. Again, verse 16 Whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. That word ashamed means to cower down and blush, to blush with shame. 
It, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. When, when somebody falsely accused you, maybe they finally find out the truth. They're like, oh, oh I'm, 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 I'm so sorry. You know, That's what it means to be ashamed. I kind of picture when, uh, when, when Jesus was crucified and one of the Roman soldiers pierced him through, of course, to make sure that he was dead. But afterwards, that soldier said, truly this was the Son of God. I think that was him cowering down in shame at what he had done. So we know what a shame means, but what's going to cause that individual who's called you an evildoer, who's caused suffering in your life to back down in shame? Well, your good response. Your good response to the wrongful suffering. That's what's going to cause it. Look, there's a lot of, a lot of things that were out of their control this moment. In the first century, during these believers' lives, the only thing they could control was how they were going to respond to the circumstances. They couldn't control their circumstances. They can control how they respond to them. They can control how they're going to conduct themselves, even after being accused falsely of being evildoers, of enemies of, of Rome, and so forth and so on. They can control how they're going to respond to that. Listen, you cannot control how people treat you. How I many know that's true? <laughs> You cannot control what, pe what people are going to say about you. How do you know that's true? Yeah, absolutely. You can't control what they do or what they say, but you can control how you're going to respond to them. And the only person you can control is yourself. You say, I can't control myself, Pastor. I just can't do that. <laughs> okay, if you can't control yourself, I would like to suggest we get one of those really fancy jackets that makes you hug yourself all day long and puts you on those padded rooms and you just jump on it all day, okay? Anyway, <laughs> take away everything sharp and, yeah. You can't control yourself because you can't. I find it interesting when people say they can't control themselves and maybe they had a blow up at home or at their family, but when they come to meet with the preacher, they're calm. So that tells me you can control yourself. All right. You just don't want the preacher to think bad of you. That's why you're controlling yourself right now. Anyway, I'm meddling. I better stop. So you can. The only person you can control is yourself. And listen, your response, your good response to the cir circumstance or whatever holds more power than their treatment of you. Did you catch that? Your response to them holds more power than their treatment of you. Though their treatment may be horrendous, though it may be some kind of suffering, your response is more powerful. Why? Here's why. Your right and good and godly response can humble them at a moment's notice. That's why. Your response can change their mind and their conduct towards you in a matter of time. That's why. There's a great example of this found in the Old Testament the life of David. Now, we know that David was not a perfect man. He did mess up a lot. And yes, even royally, yes, pun intended. But he was still a man after God's own heart. But even though he's a man after God's own heart and did a lot of great things, and yes, some dumb, listen, for the first 15 years, for nearly 15 years after he was anointed by the prophet to be the next king, for the next 15 years he was on the run for his life from King Saul. And on 12 different occasions, Saul tried to take his life. He threw javelins at him. 
He gave his own daughter to David to, to be in marriage, trying to somehow get him in a snare. And many times he would chase David through the wilderness like, like a dog. Uh, he was at one time even sent 3,000 choice soldiers to surround David and take his life. He was chasing him down to kill him. But in each and every situation, David did not retaliate, though he had two great opportunities to retaliate against Saul and to take Saul's life with his own hands. The one time, of course, was in the cave when the Bible says Saul went to cover his feet. He went to use the bathroom. All right, that's what that means. And David was in that same cave, and David's men were like, Saul, this is your chance, man. Take it. Take your sword and run him through. Let's be done while his suffering we're going through. But he didn't do it. He simply cut off a portion of the king's robe or his clothing. And after the king was done with his business, went back out to his men. King David came out to the, to the cave and showed him that clothing and showed him he could have taken his life, but he didn't. Yet Saul did not repent. He continued on. Then another opportunity David arose in David's life to take the life of Saul. He didn't do it then either, even though his own family was with him this time and saying, strike him through. Take that spear that's at the side of Saul there in the camp. They're all sleeping. And David and his nephew Ab Abishai walked in. He said, take that spear and just run him through and stick him to the ground. Do it, uncle. Come on, uncle, do it. You know, I could hear Abishai doing that. But David said, no, I ain't doing that. I'm not touching this man. He's the king, and he honored him as such. But he did take his spear, and again, he yelled out to Saul and his men and said, Behold your spear. It's at that moment, though, his good response, his favorable response to Saul, it humbled this very arrogant, Saul, that is, arrogant, prideful man. And notice his response finally, after 15 years. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Samuel 24, 17 through 19, he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I. Oh, oh we're coming to our senses now. That's great, Saul. He says, For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how thou hast dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord had delivered me in thine hand, thou killedst me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go? Again, another rhetorical question. For Saul, that would have been no. Because his enemy had been David for 15 years. If he'd have found him sleeping, he'd have killed him. Then he goes on to say, Wherefore, the Lord will reward thee good, for thou hast done unto me this day. Listen, David could not control Saul. He could not control how Saul treated him or viewed him. He could not control Saul's response to him. But David could control his own. And he responded with goodness, with kindness. And all that response pointed Saul to the Lord. Not to David. Which, by the way, should be the goal of our response, should be the goal of our testimony, to point people to the Lord. So let me ask you, have you responded lately? And who are they pointing to? Who's that response pointing to? 
they point to, man, that guy over there, man, he's just always mad and angry. Goodness. Point to yourself. Or they point to you and say, man, there's something different about that guy. He's not like everybody else. I got to find out more. You know what it's pointing to? Ain't you? It's pointing to the Lord. Have you responded lately? Peter here, he tells again how to respond. Number one, he tells him to respond in fear. Now, not fearing Nero, but fearing the Lord. Again, look at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God and your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, as Peter is writing this, he is actually quoting from the Old Testament from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13, the Bible says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now again, keep in mind, Peter's writing to believers, and the vast majority of them during his first century were Jewish believers. And so as a Jewish individual reading this letter and coming across this verse, knowing the Old Testament reference, no doubt would have encouraged them highly to see and know what Peter is talking about. About You say, what is Peter talking about necessarily when he's pointing back to Isaiah chapter number 8? Well, let me tell you, fast, all right? Understand, during this time when Isaiah was writing that portion of Scripture, the nation of Israel had already been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Good job, all right? Northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was ten tribes. The southern kingdom was two tribes. The northern kingdom oftentimes would be referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom would have been referred to as Judah in the Old Testament. So at this time, there's great conflict, okay? There's always seen to be conflict surrounding Israel, but this time it's between themselves. And yes, other nations too. But in Isaiah, with this conflict, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, was facing a terrible dilemma. You see, the kings of the northern kingdom, as well as the king of Syria, wanted Ahaz to join forces, to yoke up together. But Ahaz didn't want to, and rightfully so. He should not have yoked up with him. He should not have joined alliances at that time. But because of his <clears throat> refusal to yoke up with him, there was an impending invasion by the northern kingdom and their cohort, Syria. So this worried the leader, this worried King Ahaz, and he began to contemplate an ungodly alliance with the Assyrians, their sworn enemies. Yet it was this very alliance that Isaiah warned King Ahaz not to do when he said this. He said this to King Ahaz, sanctify the Lord God, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear, let him be your dread. You see, no doubt King Ahaz was scared to death of the northern kingdom's invasion, of Syria's invasion into the southern kingdom. It would have been a fearful moment for that present moment. It would have been a certainty of war and a certainty of suffering for him and for his, his people. And this reality would have made anyone afraid. Yet Isaiah says this in a nutshell. Look, I know you're outnumbered. I know you're scared. I know you're terrified, and if you allow their fear to control you, you will do some very foolish things, especially this foolish alliance. So listen, King Ahaz, instead of fearing them, do this. Fear one who is greater. Greater than Syria, greater than the Assyrians, and greater than your own fear itself. He says, fear 
the Lord. Honor the Lord. Set Him apart in your heart. Let Him fight for you. Fear the Lord. And no doubt, as, as the, these Jewish believers would read this reference as Peter is referring it back to the Old Testament, he's letting them know, yes, there's probable suffering and even you guys are suffering now. But can I encourage you to fear the Lord over fearing Nero? That's what he's getting at. Fear the Lord. Look at verse 14. But, it, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Don't fear Nero. Fear God instead. Fear the Lord. And that natural response should be this. After fearing the Lord, number two, quickly, have faith in Him. Trust Him. Trust in the Lord. If you're truly fearing Him, you'll trust Him. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, uh, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Listen, you can trust the Lord. No matter what you're facing, you can trust Him. Has He ever failed you? Rhetorical question, by the way. No. He's never failed you. So whatever you may be facing, whatever you may be going through, or even about to go through, respond in a good way. Respond by fearing the Lord. Respond by having faith in Him. Because the Bible still says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Church, listen, we must respond right even in the midst of a season of suffering. I don't know what you're going through. But I can encourage you to conduct yourself wisely as you're going through it people are watching you and let that response let that behavior let that conduct that conversation let that point to the Lord that maybe why he's allowing the difficulty and suffering in the first place there's somebody close to you that needs to see your good conversation that points them to Jesus how have you responded lately? And how we respond moving forward. God help us do it with fear in the Lord and faith in